Welcome to Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We're coming to you from our 2022 fall conference in beautiful Colorado. And today I'm very honored to be joined by Dr. Uh, Sue Desmond Hellman. And she is a, a life sciences advisor, but she is also, I mean, an extremely long resume of accomplishment, um, including being the third ever uh, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She has, she serves on the board of Pfizer. She was a uh, leader at Nentech at uh, UCSF. Uh, there's so much um, that it's rare that you get some uh, the opportunity to speak with someone who's had leadership roles in so many different large organizations that have had such a significant impact on society, both through medicine and then, of course, the work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mm -hmm. with uh, really just spearheading the eradication of malaria and mosquito-borne yeah. diseases and, and dealing with issues related to infrastructure deployment for clean water to reduce waterborne and mosquito-borne yeah. diseases. It, it's really an honor to speak with you. Um, Thank you. You had a great presentation where you were talking about a lot of the uh, advancements in medicine mm -hmm. and, and some of the things that you were talking about at the end of the presentation. I think you had a question about what's one of the, a couple of the things you could do to have a healthy life. You did mention something that I thought was very interesting, which is social interaction, which is something which I don't think gets enough play. In your experience, both clinically and just in the research that's been done, how important is that later life social interaction? So I, I got asked the question, and I was really happy to get asked this question about um, the kinds of things you could do for your own longevity. And I certainly would have to give up my card as an oncologist if I didn't say smoking. Of course, of course. <laughs> so it's because it has such a, a tremendous impact on your lifespan, not to mention COPD, the, you know, respiratory problems and many other problems. But smoking aside, I think that the traditional diet and exercise, eating a, a reasonable diet, keeping it a healthy weight, and and when people hear exercise, they think you need to uh, to hire a trainer or something like that. You can walk, you can go up the stairs instead of taking the elevator. The you know simple simple things can help. But I mentioned something that I think increasingly is concerning uh, physicians who I talk with, especially with an aging population, and especially with COVID is that we can be so isolated yeah. and social isolation is a tremendous issue for aging. It's a tremendous issue for mental health. And it is another thing where simple things can work, but you have to kind of start to think about, okay, have I seen my friends? Have I checked in with my friends? Have I checked in with my family? And and I would say it's not too aggressive uh, uh, to say, to push yourself yeah. to say, I'm, I'm not going to curl up in a ball. <laughs> you know? and, and, and I guess the current generation right now that, that is in that population, you know, was still raised and lived the majority of their lifespans within a time frame where social interaction was still face to face, mm -hmm. where we still had to get together with groups and, and, and do things. The current younger generation is so isolated now right. on their phones or on social media that 
is it a concern? Is it something that, that, that the medical profession is looking ahead and saying, if it's bad now, and that's an issue that, that really accelerates mental, you know, mental cognition or, or, or accelerates or hastens decline in the future, it's going to be even a more pressing issue. So, you know, it's interesting. I was talking about the, the I was addressing my remarks much to the question, which was around aging, but you bring up a separate issue, which, um, is a subject of a lot of concern, and that is young people, especially girls, who are uh, um, on social media, who feel, who are either bullied or feel inadequate, um, or have a fear of missing out, or a fear of um, of not being popular. Like, I mean, I was I was worried about being popular yeah. when I was a teenager yeah. too. This is a normal thing, but a lot of normal emotions feel like they're blown up by social media. Yeah. So, what is a, a subject of a lot of study is. When, what age is it safe for kids to be on social media? Yeah. Should you prescribe the time that they're on? Those are the kinds of questions that I see people asking because it is, and the other thing that I think is really important is it, it, social interaction is face-to-face -face social interaction, even verbal social interaction is not mimicked by social media. It, those aren't the same. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah, it is. And, and it's amazing how, how something that could be brushed off face-to-face could be blown up out of proportion and just it's made just 10 different. times more. It is just well, I'm different. sure you've seen this and it's one of the coaching things I've in encouraged people to think about when they're new in a workplace. If I said to you, you know, when you said that to Sally, she seemed to like, didn't, it didn't go well. Maybe you could say it like this. You know, we could have a conversation. If I emailed that to you. There's no context. No context. And you'd be, okay, Sue's mad at me. Yeah. What? No, I think just understanding that if it's social media, if it's email, if it's a text, it's different than you don't see the person you don't have. You don't get to say, but here's what I was thinking. Yeah. You know, that it's kind of, there. yeah, talking is good. <laughs> you know, you brought up, you know, coaching and, and I'm just, you, you've been exposed to a lot of people who are, I think in the way that you described Bill Gates, just being driven, results driven. You know, and of course that that stems back from that, you know, I mean, the man created personal computing practice. Yeah. You can't create something like that without being absolutely driven and focused, right? And it's a strong personality. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine through your times, Genentech, um, you know, just foundation, you're tackling big issues. Mm -hmm. And and it has a lot of people who are very, very driven to get it done from a stakeholder engagement and, and bringing people together under a common banner and keeping that together. That That's a big, I think, from a leadership position, a, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. How do you view that process of saying, we've got people with different personalities and goals, and I want to bring them together under one common banner? Well, the first thing that, that I always um, think about is... What are we going to accomplish together? What are we going to cause to get done? That's why um, I think a, 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 being at a university and being at a foundation are really terrific. And I've enjoyed both of those. Being at a company in many ways as a leader is easier because, you know, Wall Street, <laughs> earnings per share, <laughs> expectations of the stock analysts, these are, these are all written down. This is yeah. not fuzzy. So I liked the clarity 
of all of that. And, and so for me and my team, it'd be, here's what the company needs from us. Yeah. Here's how we're going to get it done. And here's what I'm counting on you for. So I think incredible clarity on expectations is where it starts. And then I think the, the leader can and should celebrate everybody's contribution. You're good at this. I'm good at that. The other person's this. I think celebrating people's um, contributions creates an atmosphere where you can go to someone and say, you know, we were counting on you for this and we're not getting it. Yeah. Exactly. So either, you know, I like the, the um, simple thing of can't or won't either you can't do it. So we need to get you training or get somebody else to do it, or you won't do it. Yeah. If that's the case, explain yourself. Yeah, exactly. But it also brings up that other part that you, that you spoke about related to risk that you can't be averse to risk because, and it's not a question of go fast and break something that that's, you know, that's overplayed to it at large extent, but it's willing to take a calculated risk or step outside the lines, hoping that what you've done is going to substantiate that risk, right? It's yeah. And I think the biggest risk uh, in, in people's careers and, and, uh, in the workplace is the risk of being wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, if you say, look, here's my hypothesis, you know, if you think like a scientist, my hypothesis is that doing this will cause a good outcome. Here's how I'm going to test that hypothesis. Here's the date. We'll know that here's how much it will cost. And look, if the answer is no, we'll go on to another hypothesis. Yeah. Nobody in an R and D world would, would have a problem with that. The problem is your hypothesis is messy. Wasn't based on good science, or you don't have the discipline or the drive or the team to say the time and money, right? You either take too much time or too much money or both. Or for me, the bad thing in R&D is you get a result and it's maybe. Yeah. What? I mean, yes is party hat. Yeah. No is going to the next one. But maybe we, that means more money, more time. Yeah. Well, I, I don't like maybe. Yeah. I, and, and the R&D question is interesting because, you know, the pharmaceutical companies spend an amazing amount of money of research and development. You know, technology companies, same thing. In the nonprofit world, it's practically non-existent, right? There's kind of a set way of going about things and testing is, uh, well, you know, it happens, but yeah. you know, how, how did you approach? I mean, cause it's a different, it's a different view of things. You were going from, you know, Genentech and then, and then moving over to the foundation world. How did you kind of bring that spirit? Well, I, I guess Bill Gates had kind of the R&D understanding. So, so Bill definitely, you know, he's a corporate guy. So yeah. Bill and I spoke a common language and um, we had a great finance team, a great business development team. What I tried to do, though, when I first got there, it, it was extraordinary. And it's a, it's a testament to his intellect that Bill did a lot of the financial planning uh, yeah. in his mind, you know, like he would be like, here's how much we're going to allocate to this and that. And I wanted a really good business process of financial planning so that everybody at the foundation, you know, that we would have that underpinning. Yeah. And, um, and we did that. We succeeded in that and put together a better planning process. The foundation is in some ways has aspects of it that it's a grant giving organization, right? So, so the grant giving part of it is very much like any other foundation. Um, but the, the uh, uh, more life sciences part of it does have aspects that are very pharma-like. So I'm talked about the mRNA vaccines. Gates Foundation made investments in mRNA vaccines. Yes, yes, they did. Yeah. And that, it is truly amazing. I, I mean, COVID-19 was 
it's one of those defining moments in history where you're able to move from identification of the problem to a therapeutic. It's, I still think that that was near miracle that that all of that happened so fast. And, you know, the regulators, Mm -hmm. the governments, the companies, the universities, everybody did their part, but it's, um, but you know, that's not business as usual. We have to figure out a way to prevent pandemics and to have one of the things that Gates Foundation has done that I like a lot is to fund this thing called CEPI and CEPI is working on kind of having so to speak, a cassette. So let's say you had a vaccine cassette and you could pop in Ebola A, Ebola B, Ebola C, COVID A, COVID B, COVID C, and and whatever the virus is, you could use that cassette and its process for manufacturing everything else so that it's as close to plug and play as you can make it. Yeah. And Which would be a good thing. That would be a good yeah. thing. And I guess what's what's undersold with the development of the, of the vaccines because you know you had everything surrounding it and 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 is is the fact that the mRNA vaccine so much was learned in the process of producing that vaccine is going yeah. to be used for so many other therapeutic treatments. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not not to mention so that you remember back when remdesivir the Gilead drug was around and then Merck had a drug um so so the the chemists are going to know the and chemistry you know talk about using computing chemistry is at a level now where they'll be able to look at those molecules and say why did this one do this and why did that one do the other you know it's it's um it's great because there'll be a great feedback loop. Using all that technology, and I know that you were involved with the Obama administration on really the personalized mm-hmm. therapeutics, right? So I read an article about the first personalized treatment for melanoma. Mm-hmm. That was that was that that came out. Where do you think the where do you think how far away are we from actual personalized care to a point where they can tailor a drug to you? And your and your individual chemistry errors. So I think I think it is unlikely that it'll be one person at a time, yeah. with a specific exception. It, the exception is that in cancer we can develop cells therapy that's custom made to make your immune system better. It's almost like a bone marrow transplant, but it's specifically a a, a cell therapy with the the like the precision therapy for breast cancer I mentioned or the precision therapy for melanoma it's much more at least in the medium term in the long term maybe it'll change but in the medium term it'll be that you have um, melanomas numbered one through 20 and you'll take a medicine from column A and a medicine from column B and it'll be really good for your melanoma or my melanoma maybe two and four the and two might be also found in some people with lung cancer because they're not they're not specific to one human and they're not specific to one tumor type, which is why personalized medicine is probably not the best moniker and precision medicine, I think, is a better name. And it's all it really is relying on data. It is a question of completely data driven. Yeah. And lots of data. So you say out of 100 melanomas, here's what we find. You know, engineers are always focused on hard data and everything they do is based off of yeah. that, right? And we yeah. have to figure out variables for things and, and climate change and things like that, which we didn't really you know, 
automatically designed for. I mean, in data science, I mean, regression of data science has been amazing over a short period of time. I, has it uncovered more challenge? Has it created easier pathways to solutions or has it actually uncovered greater challenges? Oh, more solutions, for sure. I mean, if you, you know, when I became an oncologist, the number of active drugs we had to treat people with cancer was so tiny. And the the number of um, times I would have a discussion with somebody about, here's the one or two things we have, and they're so toxic that we should talk about whether you want to try them at all. Like, it was awful. And so the the, the amount it's changed is dramatic. Dramatic. It's amazing. And it's benefited so many people. And it's the, just the it's, biggest the, the biggest problem right. is cost. Well, that's yes. super expensive. It's super expensive. Yeah. I mean, and that's there's so many variables that go into that cost factor. I mean, do you see a way to bring it down and make it a bit? Because because I think I, I remember watching a, a YouTube video where you were talking about precision care and the threat of the economic divide that comes with that. Oh, yeah. No, there, it, it, there's inequities that involve. Yeah in medicine in general. You know, I'm not an expert on health economics. The um, Our complex multi-payer system drives a lot of cost. And so um, I, have, uh, I have a bit of a bias that single payer would be a remedy to that, but it would need a lot of work to make sure we, we uphold innovation, yeah. you know? And so I think that if we can figure out how to do both of those, it would be brilliant. So many questions, so little time. I do want of time here. I really appreciate the time that you have spent with us, and I and I think that the audience walked away with with uh, you know a greater appreciation for what has been done and what could be done in the future, and, and hopefully they can take so. it and apply it to their own rules. I hope um, so. So, uh, Sue Desmond Hellman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And this has been another episode of Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We will see you next time.